the first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. And then, you know, to, to then to process the blood that was around them and then to process that, like, no, these people weren't lying down. They weren't just, like, lying comfortably on the street. Yeah, I was kind of, like, frozen in that window, like, thinking to myself, like, what am I looking at? Why am I still looking? How do I get away? Kind of thing. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm sitting here with Alexis Linkletter and Billy Jensen. And Billy was having a little bit of a chuckle about whatever day today is. So I'm kind of excited to get into it. Not now, but in a second. Yes, not now. in a Yes, because we have a lot to talk about right now. We have so much to talk about. We are now on week two of having a Patreon. And I've never felt more satisfied in my life. I've never felt more alive. People can DM us directly. We're talking to everybody. We're it's it's this very interesting forum in that there's this like direct communication between the Patreons, patrons, the I don't know, patrons. whatever the, and, the first and us. Yeah, and it feels very insular in a great way where it's like, oh, we're all here for the same reason and we're gonna bring you some good shit. Yeah. That's right. It feels like our super secret club, which is the reason why we made it. The Firsty Underground is just our little dark dungeon that Billy thrives and is king in, and we all just get to talk about true crime. He hangs upside down like a little bat. He just <laughs> yes. sways in his, his and you dark can ask me questions. sadness, and he just <laughs> flaps his wings when he has an opinion, and then we listen. And then he drinks like straight whiskey from a straw upside down or something mm-hmm. like that. And then he gets the hiccups, and it's a whole thing, but yeah. worth every moment, friends. I know. It's been such a great launch. I'm so excited. We've never done a Patreon before. I've, I don't really did not know much about it before we launched it. So I've been pleasantly surprised and we've had so much fun. So it really much fun. Is. It's, a, it's a lot of fun. It very much is like a club and tell all your friends because we uh, we love it. We I've do. Never seen the, I've never seen the two ladies this excited. <laughs> and you guys have to know so much of our new content. We have all these new concepts uh, under yes. the first degree banner, and they've been inspired by kind of classic narratives in the first degree. You know, we always say, keep your friends close. Now we have a segment, we have an episode called keep your friends close about these ultimate betrayals. And yeah. we have an amazing episode that came out this week. And if you're a subscriber, you heard about it. It's pretty much one of the craziest cases I've ever heard of, really. It really is. It's Orange County based and it's I don't want to give too much away, but it's it's got theater. It's got got drama (laughs) and it's got the craziest betrayal and obsession with money and obsession with love that I've probably ever heard. Like the villain in this story is everyone's worst nightmare, you know, and he went after people who are so uh, not paranoid because they were good people and they were thinking that this friend of theirs was just as kind as they were and they were wrong. And, you know. That being said, this entire segment was inspired, you know, by like our offshoot discussions here on The First Degree. So we think you guys will really enjoy them. Yes. And that's the coolest thing about Patreon is we can kind of continue to – we don't have any sort of set thing that we're doing. We're going to like evolve with what people are recommending to us, uh, the feedback that we're getting. So there's always a new idea to be had over there that we aren't able to do for these regular shows. So please go subscribe. Become a member of The First Underground. The only set thing is is that – Jack and Alexis are making me do a TikTok every three days. So please keep on asking. Please keep on you know, telling your friends to. Which no, has it is it's truly nothing thing. to do with Patreon. No, it, it is. It's all. It's all in the same thing. And, and also, uh, Billy. No, we are making you I, a spa. I'm losing my soul every little star. bit every time I do it. But please. I would like everybody to sign up because it'll make it a list a little bit better. No, people, if you want to see the softer, real side of Billy Jensen, that's where you come. This veneer he puts out up here and everywhere else in the world is not his true self. That is like that's his polished self. You want to see like the chicken nugget slanging hungover <laughs> Billy Jensen? You know where to go, and that's Patreon. That's he might that's even write totally a poem. Right. Oh, we did get uh, somebody recommending to do something with the owl poem. So that is a Patreon Billy only dressed exclusive. as an owl reading it. <laughs> oh my God. It'd be so good. 
Okay, well, I feel like that's enough Patreon chat. So, Billy, what day is it today? Today is April 20th, and I have to do this, Alexis. I'm sorry. It's National it. Pine- Pineapple Upside Down Cake Day. <laughs> it's mm. also 420. Blaze it up. You Blaze it up and eat some National Pineapple <laughs> that's, Upside that's, Down The problem is with pineapple being cooked is that when you cook something sweet, it caramelizes, and it becomes even sweeter. And pineapples don't need it. Whenever I eat a pineapple, I look at it and I go, I can't believe this is from the earth. That's I know, how good pineapple it is pretty phenomenal. Like it's from the ground. You know, it's just crazy to me. And it's like, we need to put sugar on it and make a gelatinous gelatin and, and make it worse. Like why? What's wrong with everyone? All right. I'm going to make up for it. It's National Cheddar Fries Day. Fuck Ooh, yeah. yeah now we're talking. You know I, I was just telling uh, the guys that I had some in and out before, and you know what I had? Animal style fries. So I uh-huh. ate cheddar fries on cheddar fry day. Oh, my I God. I feel accomplished. Mm, yeah. I love you it. Good. You did good. All right. Well, I think that that is enough of that. So let's turn down the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. person commits a heinous crime, we have the tendency to want to know everything about them. What's their background like? What led them down the path of destruction? And why did they do such an awful thing? Those are valid questions, and they're worth exploring. But what if this person who did this heinous thing committed this act because they wanted the notoriety, because they wanted infamy? Should we give them what they want? Should we reward them with the name recognition that they were after in the first place? We say, fuck no. So today, we're not. We begin today's case on April 23rd of 2018. Drake had the number one and two songs on the top 10 charts, Nice For What and God's Plan. Super Troopers 2 and A Quiet Place were dominating the box office, and in true crime news, actress Allison Mack had just been arrested on charges of sex trafficking in relation to the Nexium cult, and we did an episode on this, episode 96. And the setting for today's case is Toronto, Ontario. There's 3 million people in Toronto. It's the largest city in Canada, and it's known for one of the being one of the most multicultural cities in the world. It's an international center for business, finance, arts. It's also home to the Hockey Hall of Fame. And the events in today's case actually unfolded in the North York City Center, which is a business district that stretched out across Young Street, which is a main street that runs north and south through Toronto. And our first degree for today's case is named Eliana, and she lived in Toronto her entire life. She's called multiple parts of the city her home, but she was born and raised in the suburbs. In 2018, when this case was playing out in real time, she was living in downtown Toronto. It's a pretty cool city. The downtown Toronto core is kind of similar to, like, it feels kind of New York-y downtown in the sense that it's like, you know, like, tons of people, really vibrant, nightlife all the time. Like, you know, things are always going on down there. Something that's kind of interesting about that is, like, downtown Toronto is largely connected by, like, a ton of underground, like, walkways, restaurants. It's really, like, its own whole system. So underground, you have a ton of people that don't even walk outdoors. Like, they get all the way, you know, around the downtown core, like, just underground. Eliana worked for a marketing firm in the North York City Center Business District. And because the firm wasn't downtown, there were no underground tunnels for employees to utilize. They had to walk above ground the old-fashioned way. My company at the time had two buildings that were just a block or something away. Uh, We had offices in two buildings, and we would have to walk outdoors between the two. So that was a super normal thing. There's some pretty central bus stations around there and it's it's where one of the subway lines starts so there's a ton of foot traffic and there's a ton of people that are always kind of like wandering around there either you know just coming from public transportation or just going to it there's a lot of sort of like nice outdoor areas for sitting and gathering around there eliana's office building was almost completely made of glass offering employees a 360 degree view of the scenery around them 
It was a great vantage point, especially from Eliana's office, which was located a few floors up. Our building was right overlooking this square that had like, you know, benches and a pond and like a little sitting area. You know, in the spring and summer, they would have different like vendors that would come and set up there and do a little like farmer's market. On Monday, April 23rd, 2018, Eliana left her downtown residence and made her way to the business district. During the commute, she couldn't help but notice just how nice the weather was finally after a brutal winter. It was the first nice day in so long. So we'd all been like, you know, cooped up in our houses and huddled up in jackets and whatever for months. And then it was like, it was a gorgeous day. Like maybe gorgeous by Toronto standards, but you know, like sunny, warm, especially after a long winter, like you kind of, like you feel like you're like re-emerging on a day like that. Like it's so nice out. You're so excited to finally sit outside and walk outside. So that's what I remember most because it was really the first nice day. Like I got up, I got, I was like excited to put on spring clothes. Once she was at the office, it was a normal morning for Eliana. She settled in to the first day back after the weekend, answered emails, caught up with her colleagues, you know, usual Monday stuff. Nothing of note happened until around lunchtime. The first thing I remember is kind of starting to see people like that were already near the windows or standing at the windows were like, you know, kind of like shocked, I guess. Like there was kind of like a, a like a loud reaction, I guess, from the people that were standing around the windows. And where I sat was pretty close to. So I kind of just like wandered over like to see what everyone was looking at and was looking down at the street. And it's weird because the first thing I remember thinking is like, why would people be lying down on the sidewalk? Eliana couldn't process what it was she was seeing. It was like those true crime tales you've heard when people see a body in the woods but immediately think it's a mannequin. You cannot comprehend what is happening. And her brain was essentially, I think, trying to protect her from the horrors she was witnessing below. You always think it's it's not what it is, right? Because your brain just can't process something like that. So I remember looking down at the street and thinking to myself, like, hmm, there's, like, people lying around. Like, that's kind of weird. And then, like, as you kind of look at it, like, more things kind of start to settle in. Like, oh, there's blood on the ground. And then, you know, to, to then to process the blood that was around them and then to process that, like, no, these people weren't lying down. They weren't just, like, lying comfortably on the streets. And... Again, we were some distance up, so I was kind of seeing this all from above and from a distance, but it was just this surreal, like, putting of all the pieces together. Eliana had never seen anything like that before. And while she'd never been the type to stare at an accident, in that moment, standing at the window, it was if she couldn't figure out how to stop looking. Maybe out of fear, maybe out of horror, or maybe both. Eliana knew the people on the ground were injured, but she couldn't fathom how so many people could be hurt on the sidewalk. She assured herself that because Toronto was reasonably safe, whatever had happened must have been an accident. We're also like north of the downtown core. So it seems like if something bad was going to happen, it would be there. So it just like wasn't on our radar. And like I said, it was a nice day. It was the beginning of spring for us. Like it really, it was just so the opposite of where any of our minds were. So yeah, the first thought was definitely like, this must be an accident. Someone accidentally came up onto the sidewalk and ran them over. Even when I heard people saying like, yeah, there was a van, there was a van, he hit them. I was like, oh my God, it must have ridden up on the sidewalk. Like, you know, the driver must have lost control. That's, that's what this is. Eliana heard people say they had witnessed a Chevy cargo van strike multiple people before turning a corner just out of sight. She couldn't believe what she had just heard. A van intentionally hitting people on the ground? She was still trying to put together everything when an announcement came over the loudspeaker in the office. They started to say things kind of like broadcast throughout our company, like everyone stay right where you are. Anyone who's outside, please come inside and make yourself accounted for. So then we were like, okay, something like, this has got to be more sinister than just, you know, someone drove up, unless they're still trying to just kind of like, you know, there's a lot of chaos happening, like organize the scene, get a head count, make sure everyone's okay and accounted for. So upon hearing this announcement, Eliana was positive something really, really terrible was going on. Remember the various attacks that have happened. Uh, think about 9-11, right? Like something happens chaotic outside your building. 
you have no idea what's about to unfold next. So we can understand the fear for her was probably palpable at this point. She knew something terrible was happening, but that's all she knew. She had no idea if more people were hurt, whether she was in danger, if the driver had been captured, if the driver had been stopped, really nothing. While everyone stood around waiting for answers, multiple police cars and ambulances showed up. The response was swift. There was a swarm of chaos on the streets below in the form of emergency vehicles. And we saw people get out of the ambulances and start literally like draping tarps over some of the the bodies that we'd just been staring at, not even realizing that these were bodies. To me, that's kind of like that weird second of like, I was looking at a person and then all of a sudden I was looking at a body, seeing that there were tarps put over these, you know, shapes that were just lying in the sidewalk and then processing like, oh, these were bodies. And I saw them uncovered just a second ago. Eliana and her co-workers started scanning the Toronto police social media accounts, just trying to figure out what the hell happened. There were no posts. Eliana wasn't surprised. She knew that although it felt like hours had passed since she walked over to the window, it had only been a few minutes. There's no way anyone had a clue what was going on. She took the opportunity to call her mom and warn her before the news got out. I remember like running into a little room and calling my mom and saying like, you're going to hear that something's happening. I don't know what it is. I don't know what's happening, but there's something happening right outside my work and I'm okay. I just want you to know you're going to read about it. Don't be stressed because, you know, I immediately had this feeling of like, once this starts popping up on the news, which it inevitably will, you know, my mom is immediately going to be concerned about my whereabouts and trying to call me. Eliana's office building was on lockdown for several hours, but no one went back to their work duties. Everyone was panicked. It was impossible to think about anything other than the lives that had been lost just beneath them. The workers there also didn't know if the threat, whatever it was, was actually over. And everyone had questions. Why had whatever happened occurred in front of their building? Who were the intended targets? And who had done this? And everyone there in Eliana's office had to remain there like sitting ducks, and all they could do was speculate without knowing what was really going on. We couldn't go anywhere. We didn't want to go anywhere because we had no idea what the situation outside was. They started to take victims away. It didn't feel done. Like, you know, if you look down at the windows, there was still blood all over the sidewalks. And, you know, things, again, like kept kind of moving slowly in that sense of like, you're locked down. You still don't have all the information. You're watching this like surreal cleanup. Several hours passed before any information was available to Eliana and her coworkers. And when they finally did hear some news, they were surprised to find that this whole attack from start to finish had lasted less than 10 minutes. Although it had only been 10 short minutes, we know it takes only a split second to ruin countless lives and send shockwaves through a city. And that's exactly what happened on this day. So what exactly happened? Who had done this? And why had they done it? You know, to answer all these questions and more, you know the drill. We got to go back. At around 1.24 p.m., a Chevy cargo van rented from Ryder mounted a curb at the southwest corner of Finch Ave and Young Street near where Eliana worked. After striking multiple people, the van drove south, down the sidewalk along Young Street, striking yet another person. Then another and then another. According to the Toronto Star, quote, the van continued on the west side sidewalk, crashing into mailboxes, fire hydrants, and anyone who could not get out of the way. If there was an obstacle too big to ram through, the van veered back onto Young Street until it was clear to go back onto the sidewalk to cause more carnage. Survivors on the street acted as quickly as they could by shouting warnings to those who were in the path of this van. Some people chased after the van, with a few even reaching through the open window of the van in an attempt to grab the steering wheel and stop the driver. Reaching speeds between 30 to 50 miles per hour, the van sped through a red light at Young and Church, then struck a man crossing Parkview Street. A few blocks later, by Empress Avenue, the van struck another person. It was 1.26 p.m., only two minutes after the van jumped the curb. And the driver wasn't done yet. 
he would keep going, determined to take more people down with him, which is exactly what he did. The van left the sidewalk and veered into the northbound lanes to avoid construction coming up on the side of the street. Then the van crossed the median and started driving in the southbound lanes, headed for Mel Lastman Square, a highly populated area. Once there, the van drove up on the sidewalk and struck as many pedestrians as possible. It traveled around three blocks and then hit multiple pedestrians again, right before turning west onto Elmhurst, which is a side street. While the van continued driving through various side streets, it no longer struck innocent bystanders. The reason why the driver decided to quit wouldn't be revealed until later. So in the wake of the van's destruction along Young Street, people were left to deal with the carnage, chaos, and confusion. And according to the Globe and Mail, quote, onlookers described panicked pedestrians fleeing amidst screams, plus bloodied victims and bodies left laying on the ground. It sounds like a nightmare. So on the ground next to the bodies lay their personal belongings, shoes, purses, broken glasses, all the things they were carrying when they were struck. It's it's the saddest, most nightmarish scene you can imagine. You know, people are just going about their day-to-day lives, walking innocently on the street in the nicest day of the year so far, and this is what happens. It's devastating. So some pedestrians were standing still, looking around, trying to find friends or family members that they'd been walking next to only moments prior. One of those people, a woman named Michelle, told the Globe and Mail that she was walking back to her office building with a friend when they heard screams from behind them. Michelle turned around and she saw bodies flying through the air. Then she saw the van heading straight down the sidewalk toward her. She got out of the way just in time, but when she looked back, her friend was gone. And there were bodies all over. Michelle scanned over them, eventually landing on her friend who'd tragically been struck and killed. This whole thing sounds like an actual nightmare. Awful. Some pedestrians ran toward the injured in hopes of providing first aid and CPR. One woman later told the Globe and Mail that she was at the intersection of Young and Finch when the attack started. By the time she realized what was going on, she saw three dead bodies and five injured people. She went to help the injured. And she recalled one woman who was covered in blood. And so many people tried to help her, but it was too late. And she watched as the woman died right before her eyes. Another pedestrian was walking out of a store he worked at when he heard a loud bang. Right in front of him, he saw the rider van. And on the ground behind it was a middle-aged man. He ran over to help this man, but he said to this reporter that... There was no helping this guy. He, it was clear he was already dead. It's so scary and sad. During this time, so many people called 911 that some had to wait two to three minutes before they had the opportunity to even get through to report what they had seen that day. And meanwhile, at 1.25 p.m., Officer Ken Lamb was patrolling the Young Street area when he heard a call about a van that had been purposefully striking people. And Lamb wasn't assigned to the call, but as he drove down the streets, he just happened upon a rider van with heavy front-end damage. So he decides to confront the driver. He doesn't call for backup. He just decides to confront him. He turns on his lights, blasts his sirens, and starts a pursuit. Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree50 and use code degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree50 at factorymeals.com slash degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. It's almost summer and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on the realreal.com. 
The RealReal is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Staud, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. Officer Ken Lamb was patrolling near Young Street when he heard a call about a rider van that had been striking people on purpose. Lamb just happened to see the rider van, which had heavy front-end damage, and he decided to confront the driver alone and started a pursuit. Right, and Officer Lamb then followed the van for a period of time before it pulled over near Points Avenue. And Officer Lamb then got out of the car, his cruiser, and crouched down beside it. He was aiming his gun right at the driver. Because, you know, he had known this van was striking innocent people. I mean, he knew the intensity of the situation. The driver ultimately got out of the van, and he had something black in his hands. And from a distance, it looked just like a gun. So Officer Lamb is commanding this driver to get down, to put whatever he had in his hand down. But the driver is refused. He's being defiant. He is not cooperating. The driver then walks out in front of Officer Lamb and starts screaming as if trying to provoke the officer to to hurt him, to shoot him. So you can imagine the uh, energy in the unsettling nature of this entire situation. It's terrifying. He kept yelling, shoot me in the head, shoot me in the head. And he was apparently, you know, reaching into his back pocket as if he had something there, although I don't believe he was actually armed. And he really wanted this whole thing to end in a blaze of glory. He wanted to die by cop, basically. But Officer Lamb refused to shoot the driver, even as he walked closer. When the driver got close enough, Lamb was able to see that this black thing that he was holding in his hand actually wasn't a gun after all. Officer Lamb holstered his gun, grabbed his baton, and walked toward the driver, who quickly backed off and laid down on the ground. Lamb then handcuffed the man. He really de-escalated the situation so that no lethal action needed to be taken, which I think is Canadian in its own right. But it felt like it was such a slow, like, kind of shocking thing. But in reality, like, it was half an hour. Like, under half an hour, this guy literally took 10 lives, ruined a whole bunch of others, mentally traumatized everyone that saw or heard about it, and, like, was done, was arrested, you know? Meanwhile, back on Young Street, before the driver was even arrested, dozens of cop cars, ambulances, EMS drivers, everyone's arriving on scene, and they're attempting to tend to the many victims stretched out across this, you know, radius on Young Street where the van had, you know, caused this attack. And at this point, at least 16 people were rushed to Toronto's largest trauma hospital, which had to declare a code orange for a mass casualty and mass injury situation. And victims range in age from 21 years old to 90. And we won't detail all their injuries because there are many, many. So instead, here's a handful of examples. A 28-year-old suffered a traumatic brain injury, a surgical fracture to the lumbar spine, a fractured right humerus, 24 broken vertebrae, as well as facial fractures, and a laceration to the left leg. An 81-year-old broke numerous bones, and both of her legs had to be amputated above the knee. A 67-year-old was left with brain trauma, broken ribs, broken scapula, and broken pelvis. And a 42-year-old suffered a dislocated shoulder, fractured ribs, and 15 stitches to the back of her head. Ultimately, 10 people were murdered, with an 11th victim dying three years later in 2021. It was the worst mass killing in Canada since 1989, when a man killed 14 women at a school in Montreal before taking his own life. The victims in Toronto that day came from all walks of life. Their ages ranged from 22 to 94. 
Some were Canadian citizens and some were just visiting. Victim number one, Ji Hun Kim, 22 years of Toronto. Victim number two, So Hee Chung, 22 years of Toronto. Victim number three, Geraldine Brady, 83 years from Toronto. Chol Min Kang, 45 years, Toronto. Anne-Marie D'Amico, 30 years from Toronto. Betty Forsyth, 94 years, Toronto. Manir Nadjer, 85 years of Toronto. Dorothy Sewell, 80 years, Toronto. Andrea Braddon, 33 years, from Woodbridge. Boitis Renuka Amarasinga, 45 years, Toronto. Twenty-two-year-old Jai Hun Kim, originally from South Korea, was a student at Seneca College. One of her professors described her as being a dedicated, intelligent, and quiet student, and her professor was honored to have had her in his class. Twenty-two-year-old So Hee Chung was studying cellular and molecular biology at the University of Toronto, where she was a member of the South Korean community. Known for her love of fashion, she also worked in sales at the luxury department store Holt Renfrew. 30-year-old Anne-Marie D'Amico worked for Invesco Canada, located near where the attack happened. She was described as a bubbly, kind person, and she was a lifelong volunteer for many organizations. And she was even voted Tennis Canada's Volunteer of the Year in 2016. 33-year-old Andrea Braden was an account executive at Gartner, an international research and advisory company. She was also an active member of the Slovenian Roman Catholic Church and several cultural Slovenian groups. 45-year-old Eddie King was a chef at a Brazilian steakhouse located not far from where the attack occurred. Originally from South Korea, he had a passion for food and cooking. 45-year-old Butis Renuka Amarasing, a nutritionist at a school near Yonge Street and a single mother to a seven-year-old son. Originally from Sri Lanka, she was known to be kind, helpful, and generous, often bringing food and snacks for the children at the Buddhist temple. 62-year-old Amaresh Tesfamariam, a kind, patient, and grateful woman, was the only victim who didn't die on the day of the attack. She'd been heading to the long-term care home that she worked at as a nurse when she was hit by the van. She was rushed to the hospital with major injuries, including a cervical fracture, leaving her paralyzed from the neck down. For more than three and a half years, Amaresh lay in the hospital hooked up to a ventilator. On October 28, 2021, she passed away at the age of 65. Her best friend Sable told CTV News that while she's heartbroken, she's also relieved because Amaresh hadn't been living. She'd simply been existing. Now she's without pain. 80-year-old Dorothy Sewell, the best grandma you could ask for, was walking to the bank when she was struck by the van. She was a huge fan of the Blue Jays and the Maple Leafs. And her grandson said... Either she was at the game or she watched them all on TV. And if it was a close game and you tried to call her, she wouldn't answer until the game was over, which is a woman after my own heart. Honestly, like hearing these little anecdotes about these people, it's like really raw and brutal because it's like they were just walking down the fucking street. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and they have people they love and things they love like sports and, and, you know, volunteer things they're passionate about. And it's just so sad that it's like van jumps a curb and it's a cosmic shuffling of the deck and your life and the life of your loved ones are you know in in peril it's so fucking sad so 83 year old geraldine jerry brady had sold avon products for more than 45 years she was most likely visiting customers when she was killed god that guts me um a co-worker said She was very honest and caring of others. She was also a fabulous seamstress. 85-year-old Munir Najjar lived in Jordan, but was in Toronto with his wife, visiting their son, who was a singer and director with the Canadian Arabic Orchestra. He was dedicated to his family and was described as a man of peace. His wife Lillian was not harmed in the attack. 94-year-old Mary Elizabeth Forsyth, originally from the UK, she used a walker, But that didn't stop her from walking around her neighborhood, which was located in the area of the attack. And she was a big Star Trek fan. She was a big Downton Abbey fan. 
She was a good person, very nice, always friendly. She was truly independent, spirited, a colorful character. And after all the victims were named, Eliana recalled feeling really fortunate that no one from her company had been killed in the attack. Because honestly, their building was right above it. And again, it was the most beautiful day of the year. Some of her coworkers had been outside at the time, just not in the war path of this van. And it was absolutely common for people to walk between their two business buildings. So it really is just a numbers game and a a statistics game about who got, you know, harmed here. So she was relieved. Some of my coworkers had been outside at the time. Like I said, it was a really nice day. So people were eating their lunches outside. They were, you know, walking between buildings and, you know, just enjoying some time in this like big park area that was just outside our building. A lot of my coworkers were outside and they, you know, literally watched this happen and ran over and were, you know, some of the first ones on scene trying to help people. On April 23rd, 2018, our first degree, Eliana, was at work in the North York City Centre Business District of Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Everything was totally normal until lunchtime when a Chevy cargo van rented from Ryder hopped the curb at the intersection of Young and Finch, and this was near Eliana's office building. Eliana's co-workers looked through the office windows in horror as the van struck numerous people before speeding off. Eliana's building was put on lockdown. Everyone just sat around wondering what the hell just happened. They wouldn't find out until later that the van continued down Young Street for two kilometers, hitting as many people as possible along the way. And before he was apprehended, the driver managed to kill 10 people and injure 16. Hours after going on lockdown, officers told Eliana's office building they could finally go home. And most of the employees, including Eliana, didn't go back to work for several days. They were still trying to process what happened. It was way too fresh in their minds. It definitely <laughs> took a long time until people, you know, felt safe walking outside. And it's, it's one thing at night, you know, I think many of us are, are trained like at night, you know, don't walk with your headphones in, pay attention to your surroundings. I know as a woman, I'm like constantly like looking around and behind me and like, you know, being <laughs> on edge if I'm out alone at night. But like, it was broad daylight in the middle of the afternoon with hundreds and hundreds of people around, right? So it's not, you're not prepared for that. The employees eventually went back to work, but it took a lot of time for any of them to feel even remotely comfortable. It took some time for us to go back to work, and it, it definitely took time for us to be comfortable, you know, taking our lunches outside again and, and walking between the two buildings without you know, constantly looking over your shoulder and listening for like, you know, screams or a horn or something that might warn you something is coming. A few months later, the company actually moved to a different building in a different location. And obviously this came as a relief to Eliana, who really wanted to get away from this area that served as a constant reminder of the traumatic events of April 23rd, 2018. And to this day, she still has flashbacks of what happened when she drives by Young Street. And she also has this adverse negative reaction every time she sees a rider van. The other thing I remember is, you know, he was driving a rider van. Rider is the name of the company, like the rental van company. And I just, I can't, every time I see a rider van now, it's just like a quick, like, you know, weird flash. And then it's like, right, normal life on the road. I'm okay. This, this company was obviously not at fault, but, you know, personally, I can't see their vans anymore without having that, that instant flashback. While Eliana and her co-workers got settled back into the office, news continued to come out about the attack. Of course, everybody wanted to know who was behind it. Who the fuck was this monster that stole 10 lives and injured 16 more in mere minutes? In their reports, some media outlets chose to name the assailant, But like we said in the beginning, we have chosen not to. Right. And as we said, we're calling him John Doe. I mean, we're not we're not using his name or we'll just call him John, Johnny, any sort of sort of like a embarrassing version of that. Anything we can come up with, that's what we're going to use. And he'd probably hate it if he knew. And that's kind of satisfying. 
the judge in the case, at the end, she was actually calling him, the perpetrator, a John Doe. And she was referring to the victims by name and calling the perpetrator a John Doe specifically because she wanted to take that away from him, you know, take like, you think you accomplished this thing and made a name for yourself and you're this like evil genius. And she specifically made a point of taking his name away from him and not giving him that infamy. I think that's part of the justice for the victims. So I I really just, I think that was so huge. In fact, here's the exact statement the judge made. Quote, it would, in my view, be a rare situation in which the public's right to be informed would require revealing the actual name of the perpetrator or where that limited right would outweigh giving the perpetrator the fame or infamy he or she seeks. Besides who the assailant was, the other big news story was his interview with Detective Rob Thomas. Throughout the entire interview, John showed a flat affect and spoke in a monotone voice. His face showed no emotion. His demeanor did not seem to change, no matter what he was talking about. It sounded like he was reading a grocery list, not recounting a brutal terrorist attack. John Doe told Detective Thomas that he planned the attack for months in advance. He never told a single soul about his plans. And after realizing a gun was too hard to find in Canada. God, what a, what a concept, by the way. I know. Must be nice. John decided to use a vehicle as his weapon. And he needed it to be small enough to maneuver, but large enough to inflict severe damage. So in mid to late March, he booked a reservation through Ryder for 1 p.m. pickup on April 23rd. And when that faithful day arrived, John showed up at the Ryder location in Vaughn to pick up his rental. And the only vehicle large enough to do what he wanted was a 10-foot cargo van. John told the detective that it was perfect. It was big enough to do some damage without being too big or too large to hop up on the sidewalk. What a dick. And I don't know if it gave him more ability to kind of choose his victims while also kind of remaining impersonal and from a distance. But, you know, he chose where to ride up on the sidewalk and who to veer towards. And there were hundreds hundreds of people out that day. So he clearly had the ability to kind of, you know, aim himself wherever he wanted to go. After leaving Ryder, John drove east on Highway 7 before he turned south onto Young Street. At the Finch Avenue intersection, he mounted the curb and he began the attack. Detective Thomas asked why he chose this specific area for the attack. There must be a reason why. John said that he didn't pick it for any specific reason. He'd pre-planned to go down Young Street because it was just a busy area. Other than that, he chose the Finch intersection by chance. And while stopped there at the red light, he noticed a great deal of pedestrians in the area and decided that was the spot that he was going to commit his attack. So John went on to explain that he floored the van, aiming the car at pedestrians, allowing the van to collide with them. He described how some people went over the top of the van while others went under or off to the side. John told Detective Thomas that he only stopped striking pedestrians when he could no longer see out of his windshield. And one of the last people he hit, he recalled, was holding a cup of coffee, which fucking guts me. It's it's really hard to even think about the person drinking their coffee on a normal mundane morning. And he stopped because this person's coffee splashed all over this windshield. Like, it's so fucking sad. So – not wanting to hit a pole or something, concerned about his own fucking safety. Because he couldn't asked, see, yeah. Right. Oh, oh, I might get hurt if I don't stop. John <laughs> turned off Young Street and continued driving down the side streets until he saw the flashing lights behind him. No fucking concern for anyone else's fear or safety. Just his. His was threatened briefly, so he, he decided to stop. And he pulled over simply for the fact, according to him in this statement, He was hoping an officer would kill him, but I don't believe that personally. He says this is part of his plan. I, I, I don't know. I don't believe him, but we'll see. So after John heard officer lamb scream at him to get out of the van, he grabbed his wallet and pointed it at officer lamb. So he would think that it was a gun. John had seen this exact scenario play out in a video where a man pointing a wallet at officers was shot dead by these officers because they thought that he had a gun in his hand. 
John said that he thought about getting a plastic gun, you know, to be more realistic, allegedly. But he decided not to in case Ryder employees saw it, which is the most insane thing that I've ever heard. So he's concerned about the Ryder employees. But whatever. Um, John's wallet plan ended up not working. Instead of shooting him, Officer Lamb de-escalated the situation and told him to drop his weapon multiple times. John, who was still desperate to die at the hands of the officer, allegedly, said that he had a gun in his pocket now. But this was a lie as well. It was really just a pen. It's around this time that Officer Lamb figured out that John didn't have a weapon at all. So Lamb holsters his gun, grabs his baton, and goes towards John yelling at him to get on the ground. John decided to follow Lamb's directions because if he wasn't going to be killed, he would rather not encounter a painful experience, which is what the report said. Now, the amount of restraint that we're seeing, you know, we're seeing a couple different things here going on in Canada versus America. One is if he was in America, he probably would have gotten a gun. He had said that. Um, And second of all, Lamb having incredible restraint of uh, holstering the gun after he realized he didn't have a weapon and then pulling out a baton. I do want to note that this is probably a thing where, like, if he was in America, a lot more people may have died. Because if he had his intention and his, he wanted to get a gun, but it was too hard. So thank fucking God he only had a van. And as destructive and terroristic and as much pain as this van caused, like, we've seen what, you know, semi automatic or automatic weapons can do. And thank fucking God he didn't get a gun. And, And this officer, Lamb, didn't die and he didn't die. So he can, you know, face prosecution for what he's done but the de-escalation we see here with officer lamb too is not something we'd see here no (laughs) necessarily so i think there's a lot to be learned from here right like sure some people might say hey people hell-bent on killing we'll do it no matter what that's what a gun lobbyist would say they'd say like hey look he did it anyway so we shouldn't but listen, he killed he probably fewer killed five people. times more if he had a gun. That's right. Because if you're mm-hmm. willing to do this with a van, imagine what you're willing to do sitting on a perch somewhere where no one can see you. I mean, yeah. right? And you're not confronted with the atrocities. Like guns can kill people far away. At least he had to see it up close. You know, well, like and there was there were so many, like he said, with the coffee spilling on his thing and him not wanting to hit a pole, like there were a lot more chances for him to kind of be stopped in the whole situation that was happening or to kind of deter him from being able to kill more people than he did where like you said if you can shoot people from so far away yeah. and you wouldn't have any of that getting in your way yeah totally. if you're the shooter at the, at the vegas shooting sitting yeah. in, you know in your hotel room shooting from you know football football fields away you're able to keep going until somebody you know tries to down you know bang down your door well until there's something in your face like you're confronted with the reality of what you've done. And I think weapons like guns remain, keep you so detached from what you're doing in real time. I think there are a lot of psychological components that we haven't really dissected with, with guns and so many fucking problems with guns, but it's for another time. So anyways, the man in the fucking van was taken into custody. Thank goodness. And thank goodness for detective lamb's police work and ability to do this because fear probably would have shook me. Like, I don't know that I would have had the composure he exhibited. And his journey, the perpetrator's journey of destruction lasted only 10 minutes, as we said. And as the cuffs were being slapped on this fucker, family members of those he'd killed or hurt probably still had no idea at this point what they lost just moments before and how their lives had been forever changed. And so news of this horrific crime, of this van attack, it started to spread internationally. And as it did, the ever-pressing question continued to persist and emerge. Why had this person done this? And the answer to that question would draw outrage and disgust worldwide. And that's because the perpetrator confessed rather early on in his interrogation that he essentially identified as what's called an incel. Many of you true crime listeners will be familiar with that term, but if you're not, we'll give you a little debrief. An incel is generally a person, typically a man, who regards themselves as being involuntarily celibate, and they express extreme resentment and hostility towards those who are sexually active. That's the, that's the true definition, but it's really against women. 
I'm sure there's a few men, there's some anomalies, but like for the most part, it's men raging against women who won't have sex with them. And they are especially aggressive and hostile towards those who deny them the sex that they feel fucking entitled to women who don't want to have sex with them. So if this murderer we're talking about today, John Doe identifies as an incel, does that answer our question as to what motivated this senseless fucking attack? Well, that's the question, but the answer is maybe, maybe because the truth is a little bit convoluted and complicated. Either way, you're going to have to wait until part two to find out exactly what happened in the aftermath, what drove this attack to happen, and how this person came to get the fucking balls to do something so disgusting and fucked up. Either way, it's not as clear as you think. Well, huge thank you to Eliana for being our first read for this episode. She will be with us next episode as well. If you have a story to tell, please email us hello at the first degree podcast.com. Follow us on Instagram at the first degree at Billy Jensen at Alexis Linkletter at Jack Bannock. Join our Facebook group. We're talking true crime all the time. Join our Patreon that we have just started. It is week two. It's and- blowing up. It's blowing up. <laughs> it's blowing up. And uh, last See but not Billy least- Jensen in a costume. See Billy Jensen in a costume. And I'm last not but not least, follow us on TikTok where Billy Jensen's videos are going viral and mine Honestly, and Alexis's aren't. <laughs> ours are ignored and Billy Jensen puts in the least effort and yet He's he thriving. just blows up. And it's like, you know, pretty- it's not, it's not the least effort. That's me thinking about it for an hour, listening okay. to all these different sounds and Get then being like, you know, here, Billy. Fuck this you. is the Continue. end of our podcast. <laughs> Happy upside down pineapple day. Yeah, I'm going to deliver one right to your house. Happy Cheese Friday. Mm. And keep your friends close, but not that close. Bye. Shout out to Jared Monica for scoring original music for this first degree. Uh, shout out to Caitlin Cleveland, our producer, writing by Haley Gray. Sources for this episode are court documents, the BBC, the Taiwan News, National Post, Toronto Star, CBC, The Guardian, USA Today, Times Colonist, The Glove, and The Mail, CNN, The Conversation, CTV, The Canadian Press. And as always, our first three guests is always our largest source. Bye.